tonight we're going to be in Acts 21. Acts 21, we finished Acts 20. The Apostle Paul saying, none of these things move me. We saw this bold statement, took a look at uh, Don McClure's testimony. And, um, and so we're going we're gonna to blow through a few chapters, kind of a flyover. Um, let's pray. Lord, we ask your blessing on the study of your word, and I thank you, God. And Lord, as we take a look at the text tonight, and the passage that you put on my heart all the way into Acts 23, and I do pray for encouragement for the body. And Lord, I, I just I sense at times discouragement, and folks just feeling as though they've, they've failed you too much to, to continue on. And Lord, that's such a tool of the enemy, and I, I pray that you would Bless your people tonight. Holy Spirit, breathe a, a breath of encouragement to all who are present and all who would hear this as it would be replayed. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, I was uh, taking a look at specialist Michael Mansour, who um, was awarded the Medal of Honor posthumously. He died and then it was given to him. He was a Navy SEAL who was under combat for 30 days straight and um, and continued to go find the priest. He was Catholic. He'd continue to find the priest to get the Eucharist uh, because for Protestants, the, the center of our worship is the Word, or I would say in Calvary Chapel. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. Where the Word is taught, Christ is present. And to a Catholic, the Eucharist is the center. Um, and, and that's where their devotion lies. And I'm not here to dispute or or argue that. Um, I had a really neat conversation with a dear Catholic brother yesterday and was just touched by his love for the Lord. And we had a precious prayer time together. And um, it just in, in, in unity, talking through these things and encouraging one another, and I was blessed by it, and just seeing what he's doing in, in the community and how God's using him. And here, Michael Mansour, with devotion, um, makes it under fire every single day to receive communion with this priest. And and then um, I think as the, the the accommodation came down, the way it worked is uh, a hand grenade landed amidst all of his his team, the, uh, the special forces, and like a John Wayne movie, jumped on it and and shielded all the rest of his his unit from the grenade and and died on on spot was given the medal of honor and um I was talking to a friend of mine Bruce Morris who's a navy seal and now is with Devgrew and does special forces and kind of up there he's in San Diego and he was telling me he's a catholic brother and he said to me you know he for the entirety of his life having converted to Christ the, the most important thing to him was the the death of Christ upon the cross that gave him life. And he had just been practicing through devotion that which he operated by instinct to protect his team. And um, and you, you think of that and you think, well, that took great courage. It took great courage. And, you know, you, you go through accounts of soldiers and, and their courage and the way in which they, they face life. And you look at our um, our personnel in the fire department, police department, especially when all of Newberry Park was surrounded by fires and watching as few, if any, structures were destroyed as they protected the farm off of Reno Road, um, or Potrero, excuse me, Potrero Road on your way to Cal State University Channel Islands and the big thank you sign from the owner of that ranch. And and uh, the joke goes that the reason why God made firemen is so that police officers could have heroes too, you know, and, <laughs> And I joke about that. I'm sorry. I just, some, somebody said Tim, and, and it was actually, it was Tim Bond who said it to me. And no, I'm kidding. I got gotcha. you. <laughs> so with, uh, with this idea of courage, there's another way to receive courage other than having to die or put your life on the line physically. And another way of courage, and it's, it's very absent presently in the body of Christ and across the nation, it takes a lot of courage to to tell somebody that abortion is taking the life of a baby. How often do we open our mouth when tested? It takes courage to say that marriage is defined by God as between a man and a woman. 
takes courage to say that God created the heavens and the earth and that we didn't evolve from apes. If I were an ape, I'd be insulted, right? The way that man has made a mess of things. It takes courage to do that. And, uh, and yet, I think what's very present in the body of Christ is discouragement. We've lost courage. We're fearful. Um, this week, just doing the renewal vows for Ruth and Rich Sasowski and seeing how much cancer has really riddled Ruth's body. And my flesh is preparing for her departure. And that's not to question her faith. But it was one of those things where you, you left there thinking, I, I don't know how much longer. I've, I've enjoyed her friendship for over 15 years. You get discouraged. Your, your father-in-law goes in after a heart attack for bypass surgery. The family descends because they don't know if he's going to make it. You know, you get discouraged. And, and I think, you know, on Sunday, we were a skeletal crew as Congressman McEwen was speaking because Nick, who is always here, and he's, he's like a bulletproof vest. He's, he's there to protect. He was absent and, and noticeably absent because Carrie was sick. Agnes isn't here. Her back is out. All these servants that you turn around, they're doing something. They're not there, and the skeletal crew remains. And folks stepped in to fill the vacancy in the void. But you get discouraged. You just see the body of Christ getting beat up and attacked, and you, you struggle over that. You, uh, you look at numbers, and you look at needs, and you, you say, well, Lord, there's not enough, and the needs are too many, and you get discouraged. And I think role of the minister, I think the hardest thing, the job isn't physically taxing, as you can tell. <laughs> Stop it. But, it. but it is emotionally and spiritually draining. Um, and and the, the greatest battle, I think, in the ministry is discouragement. He, people every Sunday are expecting to be encouraged, and they want to be blessed. And... and your, your life is a fishbowl, so you're going to be dissected and observed and critiqued and criticized and used in conversation. And you, you want to stay above that and still maintain relationships, but yet struggle trying to navigate what's coming from where and why. And it gets overwhelming. And sometimes you wonder, am I doing the right thing? Uh, especially as you watch division occur in the body and you go, am I doing the right thing? Lord, did I not hear you on this one? And you go through this. And, you know, Paul ends Acts chapter 20 with, none of these things move me. This guy was just so bold and fearless. He, he just, the minute that they'd resuscitate him, he'd go back into the city for another round. Like, is that all you got? Hit me again. This time, do it like you mean it. We left you for dead before. I don't, I don't care. Just do it again. What, what prison you got for me this time, boss? And you look at him and he's just, he's fearless. And, and to write, none of these things move me. As we studied last time, just how intense this guy is. I mean, he is courageous. He is fearless. And, and it's, it's mesmerizing. And, and he's continuing on his trip and he's, he's committed to going to Jerusalem with this offering for the starving church. And he's going back into a city that he, he was commissioned by to go and persecute Christians. He was lost, having come to Christ and having been found, and, and did a 180-degree turn, and now is embracing that which he was once persecuting. And, and he's facing persecution every city he goes, but he's going, he's going in to the lion's den going back to Jerusalem. And he knows it. The Pharisees and the Sanhedrin are going to go to town on him. And the Jews are going to kill him. And we, and we see this concerted effort in, in Acts 21. And drop down with me to verse 7. It gets worse. Watch this. When, he had finished, when we had finished our voyage, because Luke's with him, when he had finished our voyage from Tyre, we came to Ptolemaeus, greeted the brethren, and stayed with them one day. On the next day, we, who were Paul's companions, Acts 21, now coming to verse 8, on the next day, we, 
who were Paul's companions, departed and came to Caesarea. Now that's the coastal city. We'll see that when we go to Israel. It was a coastal city uh, built in honor of Caesar. It's a fascinating place. It's one of the prettiest places to go. It's right on the coast there in the Mediterranean. They entered the house of Philip the Evangelist. And we heard about Philip. He's the one that witnessed to the Ethiopian eunuch who was one of the seven and stayed with him. Now this man had four virgin daughters who prophesied. Philip is... He's got a godly household. His daughters are on fire for the Lord. They're boldly proclaiming the word. And as we stayed many days, a certain prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. Now, does it say false prophet? No, he's a prophet. He's a prophet of the Lord. He comes down from Judea, up in the regions of Jerusalem. He comes down to visit Paul. And let's see what he does. Verse 11, when he had come to us, he took Paul's belt. So he walks up to Paul. It's kind of an odd picture. He walks up to Paul, undoes his belt. Paul's like, what are you, what are you doing? You know, what are you doing? I remember one time, uh, look at me if you would before you read. I remember one time, Pam, I remember one, just kidding. <laughs> I remember one time, uh, I, 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 there was a man, his name was Paul, interestingly, and he, he wanted to meet and he said, let's meet over at uh, Harold's Cafe. I want to get to know you. And he was an odd man to begin with. He, he, was, he was a couple hot dogs short of a picnic. But I really wanted to reach him. And uh, so, so we get to Harold's, and he's there, and he has a bag. And uh, he's fidgety, and he doesn't look at you, and he's got these thick glasses, and he's always scratching his head. And, you know, he's you know, drug past and just odd. And, and here we are in a crowded, you know, Harold's restaurant at a peak time, and he, he says, close your eyes. I'm like, oh, gosh. Was he, this is where he takes the thing out of the bag and shoots me. He says, take, close your eyes, and I want you to open them. And as soon as you open them, I want you to reach into the bowl. And I'm thinking, why would anyone do this to me? Who, who is this nut? And I open my eyes, and it's a bowl that has a, a concave mirror in it. And as I reach in, it looks like a three-dimensional cockroach that's floating in the bowl. And it's it's a, an illusion because the concave mirror elevates the thing at the base so it looks like it's floating. And I go to reach for it and it's it's a hologram by the the creation of the concave mirror. And as I reach for it, it's not there. And he says, things aren't as they appear. And I'm looking at this frightening figure of a man, and I came to realize he would later become one of my dearest friends. But it was, it's like Agabus. What are you doing with my belt? Those are holding my pants up. I don't And as he reaches for his belt and he undoes this, Agabus is an interesting character. We don't hear anything about him again, but he takes Paul's belt, verse 11, he bound his own hands and feet and said, thus says the Holy Spirit, so shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. So the man is a prophet, not a false prophet, a prophet, binds his hands and says, the man who owns this belt will be bound in Jerusalem. The Jews will bind him and they will deliver him to the hand of the Gentiles. And the Holy Spirit, capital H for holy and capital S for spirit, God, third person of the Trinity, has declared this. And, and, and Paul's looking at his belt around this man's hands, knowing what's awaiting him. Prophesied by the Lord. This is not good, Paul. Don't do it. Now we heard these things, verse 12, Luke saying, we heard these things, both we and those that had a place pleaded with him not to go up to Jerusalem. So everyone's going, Paul, please. Come on, enough is enough. Don't do this. And they're pleading with him. Paul answers, what do you mean by weeping and breaking my heart? For I'm not ready, for I'm ready not only to be bound, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. This guy is nuts. He's, he's going to go right into enemy fire and say, okay, I'm here. I'm expecting what to do. Verse 14 so when he would not be persuaded, we see saying, the will of the Lord be done. And 
they stop trying to debate with Paul. Look at verse 26. Paul took the men the next day, having been purified with him, entered the temple to announce the expiration of the days of purification, at which time an offering should be made, each one of them. So Paul walks into the temple in Jerusalem, does this whole thing, and this isn't like an off-worship day in the temple. This is, this is Pentecost. I mean, there's tens of thousands, not 100,000 people in this city that have come for this festival. The place is packed. Now, when the seven days were almost ended, the Jews, verse 27, from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him. The idea of laid hands on him is they were pummeling him. He's getting the daylights beaten out of him, crying out, men of Israel, help this man who teaches all men everywhere against the people, the law, and this place. And furthermore, he has also brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. He, they're saying everything necessary to get this man killed, and they are jumping on him. Verse 29, for they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city, whom they supposed that Paul had brought into the temple. So they accused him of something he hadn't done. Paul was still observing the law. Verse city, all the city was disturbed. So Paul starts a riot. Revival or riot starts a riot. The whole city is disturbed. Over 100,000 people. The people ran together, seized Paul, dragged him out of the temple, and immediately the doors were shut. Get out of here, you loser. Verse 31, now they were seeking to kill him. News came to the commander of the garrison that all uh, Jerusalem was in an uproar. He immediately took soldiers and centurions. So he now, he, he now has invoked the National Guard, the city police, the Romans come bolting down because the riot is so big, not just a little thug of gangs beating up on one guy, the whole city's in an uproar. The National Guard is called in because of this one man who refused to, to respond to Agabus, the prophet, inspired by the Holy Spirit, declaring to Paul what would happen. Paul's watching his actions causing tumult in the city, and he is responsible, having heard from the Lord, and everybody's in an uproar, and Paul's in the middle of this entire just hornet's nest. And he caused it. This bold, arrogant, you know, unmovable force. And the whole city is in a tumult. Verse 30, and all the city was disturbed. The people ran together, seized Paul, dragged him out of the temple. Immediately doors were shut. Garrison comes down. Verse 32, he immediately took soldiers and centurions, ran down to them. And when they saw the commander and the soldiers, they stopped beating, beating, beating Paul. Agabus never said anything about a beating. Then the commander came near and took him and commanded him to be bound with two chains. And he asked who he was and what he had done. And some among the multitude cried out one thing and some another. All they knew is they wanted him dead. They didn't care who he was. So when he could not ascertain the truth because of the tumult, he commanded him to be taken into the barracks. And when he reached the stairs, he had to be carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the mob. For the multitude of the people followed after him, crying out, away with him. It actually goes on to describe that, that the commander of, of the Roman the centurions, um, he, they thought that Paul was going to be physically ripped apart. That's how much they were pulling him. Try to picture, this isn't you know, a rock scene where he jumps out and crowd surfs. They are ripping his body apart. They're beating him. They, they're, they're infuriated. It, it, it'd be like you going into Mecca and preaching about Jesus Christ in the midst of the mosque. Are you getting this? You aren't going to live long. That's, that's the equivalent. And before you go in, everybody tells you not to, and the Holy Spirit testifies that that's what's going to happen. What good is going to come of it? All that happens is a city goes nuts. And they're saying, away with him. Jump over to Acts 22. Because Paul goes through a number of riots. The city's in an uproar. By the time he's finished, three riots have occurred. We, we could go through that in, in the remainder or the beginning of 22. But I want to jump down to where he really hits it with the religious leaders, the Sanhedrin and the Pharisees. 22 verse 30. The next day, because he wanted to know for certain why he was accused by the Jews, he released him from his bonds and commanded the chief priests and all their council to appear and brought Paul down and set him before them. 
So what Paul did in, in the early part of 22 is he defended himself by saying, I'm a Roman citizen. First, they said, you're an Ethiopian, where some people believe Paul was of dark skin color, that they accused him of being an Ethiopian. He says, I'm not an Ethiopian. I'm Saul of Tarsus. I'm a Roman citizen. The centurion said, I had to buy my citizenship. Paul said, I was born a Roman citizen. We don't know all the facts about this, but we just know this is the case. And so they're realizing we can't prosecute a Roman citizen. We have got to figure out what the charges are that the Jews have brought against him. So they need to take him to the court, to the authorities, which are the Sanhedrin. And they bring him, so the, the centurion brings Paul in bond, uh, bond uh, released him from his bonds, and he commanded the chief priests and their council to appear. And they brought Paul down and set him before them. So now Paul is st- standing before the Sanhedrin. Then Paul looked earnestly at the council and said, Men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. And the high priest, Ananias, commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. So Paul begins to speak. Ananias snaps his fingers, and they go, Wow! Just, yeah! And, and, and Paul is just reeling from another blow. Blood's pouring out of his mouth. And I don't know if you've ever been hit, but I have a reaction when you hit me. Like, why'd you hit me? Paul just gets smacked. And the, the high priest commands it. Paul probably didn't see the signaling. Luke did. He, he wrote it. He signals, whap, smacks him. As he smacks him and Paul gains his composure, just trying to figure out what just occurred. Verse three, Paul responds somewhat in the flesh. Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. (laughs) I think that's a pretty cool thing. What he's calling is a whitewashed sepulcher. You are an empty tomb. You look good on the outside, but you're dead on the inside, you pathetic loser. And do you command me be struck contrary to the law? It's like standing before the Supreme Court and you've just been smacked and you diss the the justice. And those who stood by said, do you revile God's high priest? First of all, the high priest is a doofus. And, And Paul is confronted with the legal system that has been instilled and ingrained in him to respect since childhood. And when he realizes who he's called a whitewashed sepulcher, look at verse five. Then Paul said, I do not know, brethren, I did not know, brethren, that he was the high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Paul realizes, I have blown scripture. An offended brother is harder one than a fortified city. Uh, you, You do not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Paul would later write in Romans, God appoints all positions of authority. I mean, he is, he is so grieved by what he's done. And he realizes, I have caused three riots, and I have made a mess. I, I have no testimony. I have insulted the, same, the exact people I wanted to minister to. I have blown it so horribly. Paul would write in Romans 9, he'd say, I tell the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart, for I wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, what he was saying is, if, if all of the Jews could be saved and I would spend eternity in hell, I would wish that. Him writing that in Romans 9 and what he's experiencing, he, his heart is broken. I have insulted authority. I have been rude to the civic authority. That is not the civil manner in which to operate. The Apostle Paul realizes that. God appoints positions of authority. I've been insulting and wrong. And, and, and this man has acted inappropriately, guaranteed, but the re- it doesn't matter. God says, submit, be honorable. It's the institution itself. It'll break down over time, but the reality is you respect the authority. And Paul realizes this and quotes scripture to confirm that he has failed in honoring God by not honoring authority. Verse six But when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out into the council. He realizes that the Pharisees and the Sadducees are divided over resurrection. Some believe in resurrection, some don't. The Sadducees didn't believe in resurrection. That's why they're sad, you see. It's a good good way to remember it. Oh, yes, you have. You're just, no? Okay. No? It's all yours. So 
he realizes that the room's divided and he's going to try to figure out, um, he's going to try to figure out how to get the attention off of him. I was in the second grade. We had transferred from uh, Washington, D.C. to Coronado, California. My father was a military officer. On the East Coast, it just dressed differently, differently than you do on the West Coast. Uh, when I came, it was kind of in the winter, and it was a beautiful California, you know, late summer as we had entered into school. It was my first day of school, late August or middle August, I don't remember. I uh, hadn't had a chance to get much of a tan. Um, I was wearing, you know, Navy exchange clothes. I wasn't hip with the Hang 10 outfits or whatever was big back then. I come in, I look like a penny looking for change. I, I nerd, nerd alert. I walk into the second grade class. All the kids are laughing at me because uh, I'm not one of them. And, you know, it was my first rodeo. Every two years, military kids, you know, move. By this time, I was seven years old. <laughs> I already knew the whole gimmick. And, and uh, we dealt with this by humor. And you get humor down to a science. And I walked in, and they're all making fun of me. And I realize I'm the butt of the joke. And I'm looking around the room. And I look for somebody that is way more obvious than I am. I found a kid. His name was John. He Coke bottle thick glasses, nose was running, stains all over his shirt. I started making fun of him. And I was, I was so quick at, you know, at the wit, even at that, making kids laugh, that they started laughing with me as I'm making fun of him. And I ended up destroying that kid. It was, it's one of the greatest grievances on my heart to this day. And John ended up committing suicide years after high school. But, but I remember that picture that I'm in the center of it. Where do I find an outlet? And I found him. Well, Paul doesn't attack the character of another human being like I did in cruelty. Paul stays away from attacking the character of a person and addresses the issues. That's where I have very little tolerance for people who attack other people by attacking their character. There's no room in, in a civil society for that. It grieves me. And here... Paul doesn't attack their character. He doesn't do the, 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 the heinous thing I did. Instead, he addresses the issues. And he sees that the room is divided, and he's going to bring attention to it. He says in verse 8, For Sadducees say there is no resurrection and no angel or spirit, but the Pharisees confess both. Then there arose a loud outcry, and the scribes of the Pharisees' party arose and protested, saying, We find no evil in this man, but if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him, let us not fight against God. So the Pharisees are like, We're with Paul. I like this idea. He is, he's one of us, because he's speaking against these knuckleheads over on this side of the room. Not a good place to be. It's political. The room's divided. And all Paul did was state the obvious, and the Pharisees were thrilled that he stated the obvious, so they're going to back him. And, you know, political fortunes are quickly lost. Now, when there rose a great dissension, the commander, fearing lest Paul might be pulled to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him by force from among them and bring him into the barracks. They, it, it, didn't, it didn't serve the purpose Paul sought. And they're all tearing him apart, and he removes him. And, uh, and it gets awful. This continues, and Paul is so discouraged. And he realizes, Agabus told me, and I was so pig-headed. I mean, all I had to do was drop off the, the offering to the church in Jerusalem and just get out of Dodge. And now look what I've done. I've insulted my brethren. The legislative body of the city is in an uproar. I've created division. I've caused three riots. I'm bleeding. I've sustained injury. I've put all of these Romans in jeopardy. All because... None of these things move me. The Holy Spirit had warned me. Agabus had warned me. And Paul's placed in prison and he's sitting there just lamenting what he'd done. I want to stop there for a minute. You know, you look at Paul's life and it's reflective of our own. You think you're doing the right thing. And you realize you were way off base. And you couldn't couldn't have failed more than you did. And Paul's probably sitting in that prison. The Romans put him there for his own safety. And the heartache he's caused the city and the misery that he's he's incurred. And I can tell you the enemy's working overtime. The discouragement that comes at times like that. 
is unbelievable. Not only do you hear your voice repeating the failure of you not listening to the Lord or the Holy Spirit or his prophet or the cries of the people not to go. And you realize the mistake you've made and how many lives you've hurt. But as you're sitting in that prison cell and you're all alone in your own mistake, the enemy loves to tell you that you're right. And you can be put in a prison and the, the picture to me is you get to a place where you feel like an abject failure. I think the part that gets me is when you read the context of the passage, it was James who encouraged him to address the Jews. And Paul's in prison and guess who's not there? James. It's amazing how people love you to fight a fight they're unwilling to fight, and when the fight occurs, they're nowhere to be found. Let's do this. All right. And then you go in, you're, where are you? James wasn't in prison. He's, He's back safe and sound, snug as a bug in a rug. Paul's left all by himself. The ones encouraged him to do it aren't with him. And you know what he is? He's isolated. He's left all alone with him and his thoughts and his failures. I was thinking, you may not be in a physical prison like Paul, but you can be in prison of fear or of bondage to your sin that's caused you to be where you are or your deception. And there you are all alone. Friends have just parted. You, you, know, you don't have any more. You've, you've ruined all those relationships. And there you are all by yourself, isolated, playing Simon and Garfunkel. And it's the most depressing music you can find. You just sit there. Right? Nobody understands me. And it's all the Nobody can ever visit me. I'm all by myself. And then the thing that is so Anybody ever been there? And you're, I used to love it when the, the kids, you discipline them, they go in their room, they'd sit there and we go in and grab them and go, come on, come on. Come on. You bring them into the bathroom, you put their little stool, their, you know, Winnie the Pooh stool or whatever it is, and they step up on it. And I make them look in the mirror. <laughs> and they're looking in the mirror. I go, who are you angry with? You. No, 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 keep looking in the mirror. And then I'd move out of the way. So, and he, what do you see there? Me. I see me. And, and who's responsible for you being so, Me. I mean, you, well. <laughs> I am. Come on, let's go back in. You know what isolated does for you? Yeah, it puts you alone with your thoughts, certainly alone with your failures, definitely alone with your bondage, certainly alone with your fears. Isolation as a result of failure and missing what God intended for you. And there you are, right in the center of your mess that you created because you didn't want to listen and you were pig-headed and self-serving and consumed and you may have had a gift from God. You may have the gift of boldness. You may have what Paul has, but an unguarded strength is a weakness and he marched right past what God was saying and he's sitting in the midst of this isolation that he caused. And when you sit there, you got two options. Two, realize that you're isolated and whine about it and keep playing the Simon Garfunkel and going through the list of all the people who are responsible for your misery. Just, just go down the list. I'm not a good listener because my dad wasn't a good listener and he wouldn't listen to me and so I don't listen to anybody. And it's his fault, quite honestly. It's just his fault. Just go down the list. 
Just spend time in your cesspool of misery. Nothing's going to happen. Just awful. Or, or in the isolation of the misery you, and in my case, me, created as we're sitting there in our failure that we're responsible for, having not listened to the Lord, and by our own fleshly influence, gotten ourselves into this mess, while we're sitting there isolated from the isolation we caused because of the people we hurt and the relationships we destroyed and the people whose lives we put in danger, right? Realize that we're isolated and rejoice because it's really good to get alone with God. And sometimes being alone is the best place to be because you are a captive audience if your heart is yielded. Paul with his fears, Paul with his his worries and his doubts, recounting that he had smacked the high priest and going through all of this, just thinking to himself, I have blown it so bad, but he's alone with God. And in this moment, as he's alone with God and isolated, He takes that time seriously. In the midst of his fears, he's crying out to God. Look at verse 11 of Acts 23. The following night, the Lord stood by Paul and said, be of good cheer, which means do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Don't be discouraged, Paul. For as you have testified for me in Jerusalem, so you must also bear witness of me in Rome. <laughs> Paul's like, you mean my ministry's not over? Nope. We got lots to do, buddy. And you know what? I would have been scared to death if the Lord showed up. He walks into Paul's room, and I bet you Paul's saying, God, if you were just here, if you could just give me a word, just give me. And the Lord shows up right when he needed him. Because Paul didn't take the time of isolation to be self-consumed and sitting in his cesspool of self-imposed isolation and misery, blaming everybody. Instead, he longed for the presence of God and God met him where he was. And in isolation, he meets with the Lord. The Lord comes to him and says to him the words he needed to hear. Paul, don't be discouraged. Don't be discouraged. Yeah, you blew it. So what? You give it to me, and I'm going to turn it into a masterpiece. I can do that. I'm God. Are you good with that? Do you want to keep moving and being a part of the ministry, or do you want to sit in your cesspool? Lord, if you say that I'm going to witness for you at Rome, and you're not done with me, I'm ready to roll. Look at verse 12. This is right after the Lord appears to him and says, you're going to witness to me at Rome. Look at verse 12. And when it was day, I'm going to be released. I've got a, a carnival cruise line to Rome. This is going to be the best vacation of my life. I'm going to, Paul said, I'm going to, I mean, Jesus said, I'm going to Rome. I am going to witness for the Lord in Rome. This is going to be awesome. I wonder what kind of accommodations. It probably is first class. Verse 12, when it was day, some of the Jews banded together, bound themselves under an oath, saying that they would neither eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. Now, there were more than 40 who had formed this conspiracy. You go through the remainder of the book of Acts. For Paul to get to Rome, he had to go through a hurricane, a Euryclidon, a nor'easter. His ship was torn apart. I'd been to that location in Malta where his just ship was just shattered. And in the midst of it, the, the people who were on the ship, the, the centurion, the captain saying, we've got to lower the skiffs and get loose and, and this whole ship is going to fall apart. And Paul says, I've seen an angel of the Lord. And the angel had to remind him of Acts twenty three eleven of when God had said, you're going to get to Rome safely. The angel had to come and meet Paul in the midst of the storm when everyone's scared to death and given up all hope of living, which we'll cover later. And the angel said that the, everyone's going to be safe. Keep them together on the ship. Paul goes to the centurion and says, you know, and, and you see this salty captain, ah, the ship's going to fall apart. We've all got to get on the things and we've got to get to shore because the fathoms, as we're reading it, it's getting more and more shallow. And if we don't do it, we're all going to die. 
And then Paul comes out, little tiny little guy. Hey, I'm telling you, what are you crazy? You want to stay on board the ship because an angel of the Lord appeared to me. And I know I'm bald and I'm all in, I'm all swollen from the beatings and I can't see. But I'm telling you, I know I'm, I, I know I'm educated and I speak many languages and I'm a, kind of a lawyer. But listen, you got to stay on the ship. And the centurion who's been to battle and ward and knows the captain and knows the seas and he's traversed this number of times, looks at the captain, looks at Paul and goes, we're going with Paul. So everybody stay on the ship. And, and under pretense of putting down anchors, some of the, the crew gets on. And he says, no, 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 Paul said we're all on the ship. So the, the centurion walks over and it'd be a great Hollywood movie. He just walks over with his sword, just goes whoosh, and cuts the rope and off goes the skiff. And sure enough, they come to where two seas meet and the whole ship is torn apart and they float on to dry land. And every, every person, every passenger is accounted for. And they're counting on because Roman centurions, if you lose charge of your prisoner, you face the death or the punishment they would have faced. We've covered that. And they count on they're all accounted for. Paul's like, okay, I'm going to serve these guys. I'm going to witness. I'm going to do this right because the Lord said we're going to Rome and I'm not going to insult anybody. I'm not going to slap any pre. I'm just, I'm going to do. And he brings this in. He starts making a fire. He's going to go get wood to get everybody warm because they're all cold because they're in the ocean. He's bringing the wood and a viper goes, whoosh, whoosh, bites him. Paul lifts it up and this thing's dangling. And everyone's like, oh, and Paul's like, that's, a, that's one of those poisons. I can tell by this. Oh, Lord. And everyone's going, five, four, three. And Paul's just looking at it. I mean, it's deep. It's dangling from his arm. I mean, it is in. And Paul goes, shakes it off into the fire. They're like, what has this man done that he's going to die? I mean, he survives that and he's going to die. This man is accursed. Paul just keeps gathering wood. God said, I'm going to Rome. I'm not going in a coma. And he lays it out. And, and, and Paul was reinvigorated for the calling on his life. And we got 17 minutes. Let me just share this with you. This comment in Acts 23, 11, when the Lord said and stood by Paul in the midst of that prison after he created this misery and he was in the midst of his self-imposed exile, the Lord said, be of good cheer, take courage. Be of good cheer, take courage. This portion of scripture, that, that statement is found, I don't know, four, four or five times in the New Testament. One is in Matthew 9, when they lowered the paralytic through the roof. Remember that? They riffed off the roof and they lowered the paralytic down at Jesus' feet. Imagine the paralytic. Uh, fellas, this isn't a good idea. You're going to tear up that person's roof and you're going to lower me through his feet. The room's really crowded and there's a lot of people waiting in line ahead of me. And you guys, I don't really, hey, what, what, what are you doing? You know, as they're lifting him up. Hey, hey, oh, okay. If I had any feeling, I'd do, I'm upset. And they bring him up on the roof and, oh, and they're slipping. He's like, oh, this isn't a good idea. And they lower him through the roof and the hole that they've torn through the roof of somebody's house. And this poor guy's being lowered down in front of this crowd, right in front of Jesus, and everyone's looking up, and the dust is falling through, and he's just being, boom. What up? I know it's a little odd. You can imagine what he's going through. And, and, and as we see Matthew's account, this is the fascinating thing, because in all the accounts, whether it was in Luke or, or in Mark, Jesus said, your sins are forgiven you, right? Which tells us that not only was a paralytic concerned about what his friends were going to do, but he was going to be before a holy God in the midst of his sin. And he was going to have to be face to face and lock eyes with the son of God. And he was terrified. So much so that in Matthew 9, it says, behold, they brought him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, which is an endearing term. You wouldn't say it to a wayward hooligan. He says, son, be of good cheer. Take courage. Your sins are forgiven you. We know that he was healed and he looked up at them. He says, your faith has healed this man. Luke 8 the woman with the issue of blood. She had spent all her money on doctors and she had isolated herself from all of her family. 
she was all alone. She pushes through the crowd and she goes and touches the hem of Jesus' garment, knowing that her actions would make the high priest unclean. And Jesus isolated himself from that point on. He was taken out of the game because he still observed the law. He was taken out of the game the minute that woman touched him. He stopped hanging out with people until the purification time had ended. She presses her way through the crowd, touches the hem of her garment. Jesus turns and says, who touched me to Peter? And Peter goes, what do you mean who touched you? Everybody's touched you. Do you see the crowd? And all of a sudden as he looks around, there's the woman. And she's had this flow of blood for 12 years. She touches the border of his garment. Jesus says, who touched me? All denied it. And Jesus said in verse 46 of Luke 8, somebody touched me for I perceived power has gone out from me. And now when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling. She knew that she had screwed it up for everybody. She was going to deal with her, her actions that had resulted in everyone's, the consequences of her actions being imposed on everyone for what she did. She fell down before him. She declared to him in the presence of all the people the reason she had touched him. I, I know that all of you are not going to have access to him. Uh, 12 years, I've been bleeding. I just, I needed to touch him. I tried to do it quietly. And she acknowledged it. And what happened is she was healed immediately. And not just being healed, verse 48 is powerful. Jesus said to her daughter, take courage. Take courage. Your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Matthew 14, Jesus comes to the disciples in the midst of a storm. They see the lightning and the thunder. They feel it. They're scared to death. He had sent them on ahead. And he'd sent the multitudes away. And he was on a mountain by himself praying, watching these guys go through the storm, just checking it out from a distance. He's up praying to the Father and letting these guys, you know, work through it. They're in the midst of fear. And they're in the middle of the sea, tossed by waves and wind. And the wind was contrary. The fourth watch of the night, which is, you know, what, two, three o'clock in the morning. They're scared to death. They're exhausted. Jesus goes out to them walking on the sea. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled saying, it's a ghost. And they're paralyzed. The, the idea in the Greek of they were just frozen in fear. It's a ghost. Nobody walks on water. Who is this? What do you see? It Was it, did, did you do the peyote? I don't know. That guy is what in the, who did, did you put something in the water? Where did you, hey, hey, go. Sorry. It's a ghost, and they're crying out in fear. Oh, my God, let's go away. They're screaming. And Jesus says to them, be of good cheer. Take courage. Calm down. Don't be afraid. Peter looks, says, Lord, if it's you, beckon me to come to you. As we know, Peter walked on water. He got afraid and started to sink. And then finally, John 16 was another area where Jesus is with his disciples They've given up everything to follow him. And he turns, he says, you know, I'm not going to be with you much longer. I'm going to go away. They're like, okay, wait a <laughs> Time out. You're leaving? I just left my family. What, crucifixion? What? Three days? What are you talking about? You can't leave. We don't have anything else. Fishing season's over. We signed up with you. What do you mean you're leaving? Jesus said in verse 33 of John 16, these things I've spoken to you that in me you may have peace. He says, in the world, you're going to have tribulation. <laughs> you think this is bad. 11 of the 12 of you are going to die <laughs> brutally. Judas, your whole other story. Anywho, Listen. Peter, crucified upside down. Paul, you'll be beheaded. He goes through the whole list. John, you're going to live, boiled alive, but you're going to survive it. You're going to die of old age on the island of Patmos, isolated. Anyways, lots of tribulation awaiting you guys. And I'm leaving, by the way. And he says, in me you have peace. In the world you'll have tribulation. But take courage. Be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. You think of uh, Peter's failure. 
He denied Jesus three times before the rooster crowed. And he just thought God was finished with him. God don't have anything to do with me. He goes back to fishing. You know the story of Anthracia, the black hole fire, pungent aroma, only two times in the scriptures where you see that word used. Once is where Peter's warming himself by a fire, he denies Jesus three times, smelling this black coal fire made out of anthracite that has a very distinct smell. The olfactory senses are the number one sense for memory recollection. He's watching, denying, seeing Jesus beaten, telling this 13-year-old girl, I swear to God, I don't know who he is, denies him, the rooster crows, the smell of the anthracia, the anthracite permeating his nostrils, seared into his brain. And then you go to John 21, and, and they're fishing, they catch nothing. Jesus says, resurrected body, says, throw the nets on the right side. The fish so many they can't catch. Peter realizes it's the Lord. He puts on his coat, jumps in the water, swims ashore. Then it says Jesus is cooking fish by an anthracia, a black coal fire, anthracite. Again, the same pungent aroma. Who's the one guy who needs to be by the fire? The guy who's soaking wet with his outer coat. He comes over, he's next to Jesus, just looking at him, warming himself by the fire. Smell permeating his nostrils. Jesus says three times, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Each time the memory, the smell is kicking in and he's going back to that place. I'm a failure, I'm a failure, I'm a failure. And every time Jesus says, feed my sheep, get back to work. Elijah, after he'd had abject failure, he goes into the cave of Mount Horeb. He just says, I'm done. And the earthquake comes. And then the wind. And the great fire. And the music group, earth, wind, and fire comes and begin. No, I'm sorry. <laughs> and, and, in, and in all of this, he's, he's captivated by it, but he's all, all alone and isolated in his failure. And, and then in a still small voice, the Lord speaks to him and he says, you've got to impart this to Elisha. I'm not done with you yet, Elijah. I'm not done with you. I'm blessed by 2311. Because I know what it's like to feel like you've missed the Lord. And God's done with you. And there's no way he can use you because you've isolated yourself by everything you've done. And you know you're responsible. But I've come to realize something precious about the Lord. When we're honest, you know what honesty is? Truthfulness. When we're honest with God and with people, God is merciful with us and he's not done with us. You can remain in your self-imposed exile and wallow in your failure or you can confess your sins and he's faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you of all unrighteousness and say, go feed my sheep. Nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Who wrote that? Paul. Paul. It's still going to be hard. We've got ministry ahead. But let's quit the pity party. Let's confess it and let's get back to feeding a sheep. Nothing can separate you. God's not finished with you yet. He wasn't finished with Elijah. He wasn't finished with Peter. He certainly isn't finished with you or with me. His grace is sufficient. Amen?